Welcome to this Uvula audio bookcast of The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft and Celia Bishop. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Mound is a novella by H.P. Lovecraft, entirely written as a ghostwriter in early 1930. He wrote this after he was hired by Zelia Bishop to create a story based on the following plot synopsis. Quote, There is an Indian mound near here, which is haunted by a headless ghost. Sometimes it's a woman. Unquote. Lovecraft did not like this bare-bones premise of what seemed to be a conventional ghost story. The outline was also so brief it allowed for a great deal of license, so he made it into a 30,000-word story about a mound that conceals a gateway to a subterranean civilization, the realm of K'un-Yan, into which one of the main characters enters and lives for a while. The story is one of only three by Lovecraft where a non-human culture is described in rich detail. The other two have already been presented by Ubi the Audio and are At the Mountains of Madness and The Shadow Out of Time. The Mound is not well known as the other two since it was ghost-written for somebody else, but it is considered by scholars to possess the same high level of quality and imagination as Lovecraft's later stories. According to Wikipedia, the mound in the story is located in Binger in Caddo County, which, unlike the fictional towns and locations in the majority of his works, is a real town about 60 miles southwest of Oklahoma City. Lovecraft places the mound about a third of a mile west of Binger, an area where there are no mounds, which seems to make this geographic detail the only fictional part of its location. There are several mounds in the area, but not as described in the story. One of them is called the Ghost Mound, and according to a local legend, is haunted by ghosts. It is located closer to Hydro, Oklahoma, rather than to Binger. It does not look like Lovecraft described it, and it is a natural formation. This is most likely the mound that inspired Zelia Bishop to present her story idea to Lovecraft. It is possible a second nearby mound, known as Dead Woman Mound, may also have inspired her. Unlike the first, there is no ghost story connected with it, though it gained its name when the buried body of a dead woman was found there. The story was not published during Lovecraft's lifetime. After his death, August Derleth abridged the story radically, and it was published in the November 1940 issue of Weird Tales. The abbreviated version was reprinted by Arkham House over the years until the original text was finally published in 1989 in The Horror in the Museum and other revisions. Although some Lovecraft anthologies, such as The Loved Dead by Wordsworth Editions, continue to use the abridged Derleth version. Here we present the full, unabridged version of The Mound. Chapter 1 It is only within the last few years that most people have stopped thinking of the West as a new land. I suppose the idea gained ground because our own special civilization happens to be new there. But nowadays, explorers are digging beneath the surface and bringing up whole chapters of life that rose and fell among these plains and mountains before recorded history began. We think nothing of a Pueblo village 2,500 years old, and it hardly jolts us when an archaeologist put the Subpedregal culture of Mexico back to 17,000 or 18,000 BC. We hear rumors of still older things, of primitive man contemporaneous with extinct animals, 
and known today only through a few fragmentary bones and artifacts. So the idea of newness is fading out pretty rapidly. Europeans usually catch the sense of immemorial ancientness and deep deposits from successive live streams better than we do. Only a couple of years ago, a British author spoke of Arizona as a moon-dim region, very lovely in its own way, and stark and old and ancient lonely land. Yet I believe I have a deeper sense of the stupefying, almost horrible ancientness of the West than any European. It all comes from an incident that happened in 1928, an incident which I'd greatly like to dismiss as three-quarters hallucination, but which has left such a frightfully firm impression on my memory, I can't put it off very easily. It was in Oklahoma, where my work as an American Indian ethnologist constantly takes me and where I had come upon some devilishly strange and disconcerting manners before. Make no mistake, Oklahoma's a lot more than a mere pioneers and promoters frontier. There are old, old tribes with old, old memories there. And when the time-times beat ceaselessly over brooding plains in the autumn, the spirits of men are brought dangerously close to primal, whispered things. I am white and American enough myself, but anybody is welcome to know that the rights of Yig, father of snakes, can get a real shudder out of me any day. I have heard and seen too much to be sophisticated in such matters. And so it is with this incident in 1928. I'd like to laugh it off, but I can't. I'd gone into Oklahoma to track down and correlate one of the many ghost tales which were current among the white settlers, but which had strong Indian corroboration. And I felt sure an ultimate Indian source. They were very curious, these open-air ghost tales, and though they sounded flat and prosaic in the mouths of the white people, they had earmarks of linkage with some of the richest and obscurest phases of native mythology. All of them were woven around the vast, lonely, artificial-looking mounds in the western part of the state, and all of them involved apparitions of exceedingly strange aspect and equipment. The commonest and among the oldest became famous in 1892 when a government marshal named John Willis went into the mound region after horse thieves and came out with a wild yarn of nocturnal cavalry horses in the air between great armies of invisible specters, battles that involved the rush of hooves and feet, the thud of blows, the clank of metal on metal, the muffled cries of warriors, and the fall of human and equine bodies. These things happened by moonlight and frightened his horses as well as himself. The sounds persisted an hour at a time, vivid but subdued as if brought from a distance by a wind and unaccompanied by any glimpse of the armies themselves. Later on, Willis learned that the seat of the sounds was a notoriously haunted spot, shunned by settlers and Indians alike. Many had seen, or half seen, 
the warring horsemen in the sky, and had furnished dim, ambiguous descriptions. The settlers described the ghostly fighters as Indians, though of no familiar tribe, and having the most singular costumes and weapons. They even went so far as to say that they could not be sure the horses were really horses. The Indians, on the other hand, did not seem to claim the specters as kinfolk. They referred to them as those people, the old people, or they who dwell below, and appeared to hold them in too great a frightened veneration to talk much about them. No ethnologist has been able to pin any tale-teller down to a specific description of the beings, and apparently nobody had ever had a very clear look at them. The Indians had one or two old proverbs about these phenomena, saying, Men very old make very big spirit. Not so old, not so big. Older than all time, than spirit. He's so big, he near flesh. Those old people and spirits, they mix up, get all the same. Now all of this, of course, is old stuff to an ethnologist of a piece with the persistent legends of rich hidden cities and buried races which abound among the Pueblo and Plains Indians and which lured Coronado centuries ago on his vain search for the fabled Quivira. What took me into western Oklahoma was something far more definite and tangible, a local and distinctive tale which, though really old, was wholly new to the outside world of research and which involved the first clear descriptions of the ghosts which it treated of. There was an added thrill in the fact that it came from the remote town of Binger in Cato County, a place I had long known as the scene of a very terrible and partly inexplicable occurrence connected with the snake god myth. The tale, outwardly, was an extremely naive and simple one and centered in a huge lone mound or small hill that rose above the plain about a third of a mile west of the village, a mound which some thought a product of nature, but which others believed to be a burial place or ceremonial dais constructed by prehistoric tribes. This mound, the villagers said, was constantly haunted by two Indian figures which appeared in alternation, an old man who paced back and forth along the top from dawn till dusk, regardless of the weather and with only brief intervals of disappearance, and a squaw who took his place at night with a blue flame torch that glimmered quite continuously till morning. When the moon was bright, the squaw's peculiar figure could be seen fairly plainly and over half the villagers agreed that the apparition was headless. The local opinion was divided as to the motives and relative ghostliness of the two visions. Some held that the man was not a ghost at all, but a living Indian who had killed and beheaded a squaw for gold and buried her somewhere in the mound. According to these theorists, he was pacing the eminence through sheer remorse, bound by the spirit of his victim which took visible shape after dark. But other theorists, more uniform in their spectral beliefs, held that both man and woman were ghosts, the man having killed the squaw and himself at some now distant period. 
These and minor variant versions seem to have been current ever since the settlement of the Wichita country in 1889 and were, I was told, sustained by an astonishing degree of still-existing phenomenon which anyone might observe for himself. Not many ghost tales offer such free and open proof, and I was very eager to see what bizarre wonders might be lurking in this small, obscure village, so far from the beaten path of crowds and from the ruthless searchlight of scientific knowledge. So in the late summer of 1928, I took a train for Benger and brooded on strange mysteries as the cars rattled timidly along their single track through a lonelier and lonelier landscape. Benger is a modest cluster of frame houses and stores in the midst of a flat, windy region full of clouds of red dust. There are about 500 inhabitants besides the Indians on a neighboring reservation the principal occupation seeming to be agriculture. The soil is decently fertile, and the oil boom has not reached this part of the state. My train drew in at twilight, and I felt rather lost and uneasy, cut off from wholesome and everyday things, as it puffed away to the southward without me. The station platform was filled with curious loafers, all of whom seemed eager to direct me when I asked for the man to whom I had letters of introduction. I was ushered along a commonplace main street whose rutted surface was red with the sandstone soil of the country, and finally delivered at the door of my prospective host. Those who had arranged things for me had done well, for Mr. Compton was a man of high intelligence and local responsibility, while his mother who lived with him and was familiarly known as Grandma Compton, who was one of the first pioneer generation and a veritable mine of anecdote and folklore. That evening, the Comptons summed up for me all the legends current among the villagers, proving that the phenomenon I had come to study was indeed a baffling and important one. The ghosts, it seems, were accepted almost as a matter of course by everyone in Binger, Two generations had been born and grown up within sight of that queer, lone tumulus and its restless figures. The neighborhood of the mound was naturally feared and shunned so that the village and the farms had not spread toward it in all the four decades of settlement. Yet venturesome individuals had several times visited it. Some had come back to report that they saw no ghosts at all when they neared the dreaded hill that somehow the lone sentinel had stepped out of sight before they reached the spot, leaving them free to climb the steep slope and explore the flat summit. There was nothing up there, they said, merely a rough expanse of underbrush. Where the Indian watcher could have vanished to, they had no idea. He must, they reflected, have descended the slope and somehow managed to escape unseen along the plain, although there was no convenient cover within sight. At any rate, there did not appear to be any opening into the mound, a conclusion which was reached after considerable exploration of the shrubbery and tall grass on all sides. In a few cases, some of the more sensitive searchers declared that they felt a sort of invisible restraining presence, but they could describe nothing more definitive than that. It was simply as if the air thickened against them in the direction they wished to move. 
It is needless to mention that all these daring surveys were conducted by day. Nothing in the universe could have induced any human being, white or red, to approach that sinister elevation after dark. And indeed, no Indian would have thought of going near it, even in the brightest sunlight. But it was not from the tales of these sane, observant seekers that the chief terror of the ghost mound sprang. Indeed, had their experience been typical, the phenomenon would have bulked far less prominently in the local legendary. The most evil thing was the fact that many other seekers had come back strangely impaired in mind and body, or had not come back at all. The first of these cases had occurred in 1891, when a young man named Heaton had gone with a shovel to see what hidden secrets he could unearth. He had heard curious tales from the Indians and had laughed at the barren report of another youth who had been out to the mound and had found nothing. Heaton had watched the mound with a spyglass from the village while the other youth made his trip. And as the explorer neared the spot, he saw the sentinel Indian walk deliberately down into the tumulus, as if a trap door and staircase existed on the top. The other youth had not noticed how the Indian disappeared, but had merely found him gone upon arriving at the mound. When Heaton made his own trip, he resolved to get to the bottom of the mystery, and watchers from the village saw him hacking diligently at the shrubbery atop the mound. Then they saw his figure melt slowly into invisibility, not to reappear for long hours till after the dusk drew on, and the torch of the headless squaw glimmered ghoulishly on the distant elevation. About two hours after nightfall, he staggered into the village minus his spade and other belongings and burst into a shrieking monologue of disconnected ravings. He howled of shocking abysses and monsters, of terrible carvings and statues, of inhuman captors and grotesque tortures, and of other fantastic abnormalities too complex and chimerical even to remember. Old, 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 he would moan over and over again. Great God, they're older than the earth and came here from somewhere else. They know what you think and make you know what they think. They're half man, half ghost. Cross the line, melt and take shape again, getting more and more so. Yet we're all descended from them in the beginning, children of Tulu, everything made of gold, monstrous animals, half human Dead slaves, madness, shub niggerath, white man, oh my God, what they did to him. Heaton was the village idiot for about eight years, after which he died in an epileptic fit. Since his ordeal, there had been two more cases of mound madness and eight of total disappearance. Immediately after Heaton's mad return, Three desperate and determined men had gone out to the lone hill together, heavily armed and with spades and pickaxes. Watching villagers saw the Indian ghost melt away as the explorers drew near, and afterwards saw the men climb the mound and begin scouting around through the underbrush. All at once they faded into nothingness and were never seen again. One watcher, with an especially powerful telescope, thought he saw other forms dimly materialize beside the hapless men and dragged them down into the mound. But this account remained uncorroborated. It is needless to say that no searching party went out after the lost ones, and that for many years the mound was wholly unvisited. 
Only when the incidents of 1891 were largely forgotten did anybody dare to think of further explorations. Then about 1910, a fellow too young to recall the old horrors made a trip to the shunned spot and found nothing at all. By 1915, the acute dread and wild legendry of 91 had largely faded among the white people into the commonplace and unimaginative ghost tales. On the nearby reservations were old Indians who thought much and kept their own counsel. About this time, a second wave of active curiosity and adventuring developed, and several bold searchers made the trip to the mound and returned. Then came a trip of two eastern visitors with spades and other apparatus, a pair of amateur archaeologists connected with a small college who had been making studies among the Indians. No one watched this trip from the village, but they never came back. The searching party that went out after them, among whom was my host Clyde Compton, found nothing whatsoever amiss at the mound. The next trip was a solitary venture of old Captain Lawton, a grizzled pioneer who had helped to open up the region in 1889, but who had never been there since. He had recalled the mound and its fascination all through the years, and being now in comfortable retirement, resolved to have a try at solving the ancient riddle. Long familiarity with Indian myth had given him ideas rather stranger than those of the simple villagers, and he had made preparations for some extensive delving. He ascended the mound on the morning of Thursday, May 11, 1916, watched through spyglasses by more than 20 people in the village and on the adjacent plain. His disappearance was very sudden and occurred as he was hacking at the shrubbery with a brush cutter. Nobody could say more than he was there one moment and absent the next. For over a week, no tidings of him reached Binger, and then, in the middle of the night, there dragged itself into the village the object about which dispute still rages. It said it was, or at least had been, Captain Lawton, but it was definitely younger by as much as forty years than the old man who had climbed the mound. Its hair was jet black and its face, now distorted with nameless fright, free from wrinkles. But it did remind Grandma Compton most uncannily of the captain as he had looked back in 89. Its feet were cut off neatly at the ankles, and the stumps were smoothly healed to an extent almost incredible if the being really were the man who had walked upright a week before. It babbled of incomprehensible things and kept repeating the name George Lawton, George E. Lawton, as if trying to reassure itself of its own identity. The things it babbled of, Grandma Compton thought, were curiously like the hallucinations of poor young Heaton back in 91. Though there were minor differences, the blue light, the blue light, muttered the object. Always down there before there were any living things, older than the dinosaurs, always the same, only weaker, never death, brooding and brooding and brooding, the same, half man and half gas, the dead that walk and work, oh, those beasts, those half-human unicorns, Houses and cities of gold, old, old, older than time, came down from the stars. Great Tulu, Azathoth, 
Nyarlohotep, waiting, waiting. The object died before dawn. Of course, there was an investigation, and the Indians at the reservation were grilled unmercifully, but they knew nothing and had nothing to say. At least none of them had anything to say except old Gray Eagle, a Wichita chieftain, whose more than a century of age put him above common fears. He alone deigned to grunt some advice. You let him alone, white man. No good, those people. All under here, all under there, them old ones. Yig, the big father of snakes, be here. Yig is Yig. Tirawa, big father of men, he there. Tirawa is Tirawa. No die, no get old. Just same like air, just live and wait. One time they come out here, live and fight. Build dirt teepee. Bring up gold, they got plenty. Go off and make new lodges. Me, them, you, them. Then big waters come. All change. Nobody come out. Let nobody get in. Get in, no get out. You let them alone. You have no bad medicine. Red man no. He no get catch. White man meddle. He no come back. Keep way, little hills. No good. Gray eagles say this. Joe Norton and Rance Wheelock had taken the old chief's advice. They would probably be here today. But they didn't. They were great readers and materialists and feared nothing in heaven or earth. They thought that some Indian friends had a secret headquarters inside the mound. They had been to the mound before, and now they went again to avenge old Captain Lawton, boasting that they'd do it if they had to tear the mound down altogether. Clyde Compton watched them with a pair of prison binoculars and saw them round the base of the sinister hill. Evidently they meant to survey their territory very gradually and minutely. Minutes passed and they did not reappear, nor were they ever seen again. Once more the mound was a thing of panic fright, and only the excitement of the Great War served to restore it to the farther background of Binger folklore. It was unvisited from 1916 to 1919, and would remain so but for the daredeviltry of some of the youths back from the service in France. From 1919 to 1920, however, there was a veritable epidemic of mound visiting among the prematurely hardened young veterans, an epidemic that waxed as one youth after another returned unhurt and contemptuous. By 1920, so short is the human memory, the mound was almost a joke at that point, and the tame story of the murdered squaw began to displace darker whispers on everybody's tongues. Then two reckless young brothers, the especially unimaginative and hard-boiled clay boys, decided to go and dig up the buried squaw and the gold for which the old Indian had murdered her. They went out on a September afternoon, about the time the Indian tom-toms began their incessant annual beating over the flat, red, dusty plains. Nobody watched them, and their parents did not become worried at their non-return for several hours. Then came an alarm and a search party, and another resignation to the mystery of silence and doubt. But one of them came back after all. It was Ed, the elder, 
and his straw-colored hair and beard had turned an albino white for two inches from the roots. On his forehead was a queer scar like a branded hieroglyph. Three months after he and his brother Walker had vanished, he skulked into his house at night, wearing nothing but a queerly patterned blanket which he thrust into the fire as soon as he had got into a suit of his own clothes. He told his parents that he and Walker had been captured by some strange Indians, not Wichita's or Cato's, and held prisoner somewhere toward the west. Walker had died under torture, but he himself had managed to escape at a high cost. The experience had been particularly terrible, and he could not talk about it just then. He had to rest anyway, and it would do no good to give an alarm and try to find and punish the Indians. They were not the sort that could be caught or punished. And it was especially important for the good of Binger, for the good of the world, that they not be pursued into their secret lair. As a matter of fact, they were not altogether what one could call real Indians. He would explain about that later. Meanwhile, he had to rest. Better not rouse the village with news of his return. He would go upstairs and sleep. Before he climbed the rickety flight to his room, he took a pad and pencil from the living room table and an automatic pistol from his father's desk drawer. Three hours later, the shot rang out. Ed Clay had put a bullet neatly through his temples with a pistol clutched in his left hand, leaving a sparsely written sheet of paper on the rickety table near his bed. He had later appeared from the whittled pencil stub and stove full of charred paper, originally written much more, but had finally decided not to tell what he knew beyond vague hints. The surviving fragment was only a mad warning scrawled in a curiously backhanded script, the ravings of a mind obviously deranged by hardships, and it read thus, rather surprisingly for the utterance of one who had always been stolid and matter-of-fact. For God's sake, never go near that man. It is part of some kind of a world, so devilish and old it cannot be spoke about. Me and Walker went and was took into the thing and just melted at times and made up again, and the whole world outside is helpless alongside of what they can do. They what live forever, young as they like, and you can't tell if they're really men or just ghosts. And what they do can't be spoke about, and this is only one entrance. You can't tell how big the whole thing is. After what we've seen, I don't want to live anymore. France was nothing beside this, and see that people always keep away. Oh, God, they would if they could see what poor Walker was like in the end. Yours truly, Ed Clay. At the autopsy, it was found that all of young Clay's organs were transposed from right to left within his body, as if he had been turned inside out. Whether they had always been so, no one could say at the time, but it was later learned from Army records that Ed had been perfectly normal when mustered out of the service in May 1919. Whether there was a mistake somewhere, or whether some unprecedented metamorphosis had indeed occurred, is still an unsettled question. 
as is also the origin of the hieroglyph-like scar on his forehead. That was the end of the explorations of the mound. In the eight intervening years, no one had been near the place, and few indeed had even cared to level a spyglass at it. From time to time, people continued to glance nervously at the lone hill as it rose starkly from the plain against the western sky, and to shudder at the small dark speck that paraded by day and the glimmering will-o'-wisp that danced by night. The thing was accepted at face value as a mystery not to be probed, and by common consent, the village shunned the subject. It was, after all, quite easy to avoid the hill, for space was unlimited in every direction, and community life always follows beaten trails. The mound side of the village was simply kept trailless, as if it had been water or swampland or desert. And it is a curious commentary on the stolidity and imaginative sterility of the human animal that the whispers with which children and strangers were warned away from the mound quickly sank once more into the flat tail of a murderous Indian ghost and his squaw victim. Only the tribesmen on the reservation and thoughtful old-timers like Grandma Compton remember the overtones of unholy vistas and deep cosmic menace which clustered around the ravings of those who had come back changed and shattered. It was very late and Grandma Compton had long since gone upstairs to bed when Clyde finished telling me this. I hardly knew what to think of the frightful puzzle, yet rebelled in any notion to conflict with sane materialism. What influence had brought madness or the impulse of flight and wandering to so many who had visited the mound? Though vastly impressed, I was spurred on rather than deterred. Surely I must get to the bottom of this matter as well I might if I kept a cool head and an unbroken determination. Compton saw my mood and shook his head worriedly. Then he motioned me to follow him outdoors. We stepped from the frame house to the quiet side street or lane and walked a few paces in the light of a waning August moon to where the houses were thinner. The half-moon was still low and had not blotted many stars from the sky so I could see not only the westering gleams of Altair and Vega, but the mystic shimmering of the Milky Way as I looked out over the vast expanse of earth and sky and the direction that Compton pointed. Then all at once I saw a spark that was not a star, a bluish spark that moved and glimmered against the Milky Way near the horizon, and that seemed in a vague way more evil and malevolent than anything in the vault above. In another moment it was clear that this spark came from the top of a long distant rise in the outspread and faintly litten plain, and I turned to Compton with a question. Yep, he answered. It's the blue ghost light, and that is the mound. There's not a night in history that we haven't seen it, and not a living soul in Binger that would walk out over the plains toward it. It's bad business, young man, and if you're wise, you'll let it rest where it is. Better call your search off, son, and tackle some of the other engine legends around here. Heaven knows. We've plenty to keep you busy. Chapter 2 But I was in no mood for advice, and though Compton gave me a pleasant room, 
I could not sleep a wink through eagerness for the next morning with its chances to see the daytime ghost and to question the Indians at the reservation. I meant to go about the whole thing slowly and thoroughly, equipping myself with all the available data, both white and red, before I commenced any actual archaeological investigations. I rose and dressed at dawn, and when I heard others stirring, I went downstairs. Compton was building the kitchen fire while his mother was busy in the pantry. When he saw me, he nodded and after a moment invited me out into the glamorous young sunlight. I knew where we were going, and as we walked along the lane, I strained my eyes westward over the plains. There was the mound, far away and very curious in its aspect of artificial regularity. Must have been from thirty to forty feet high and all of a hundred yards from north to south as I looked at it. It was not as wide as that from east to west, Compton said, but had the contour of a rather thinnish eclipse. He, I knew, had been safely out to it and back several times. As I looked at the rim silhouetted against the deep blue of the west, I tried to follow its minor irregularities and became impressed with a sense of something moving upon it. My pulse mounted a bit feverishly, and I seized quickly on the high-powered binoculars which Compton had quietly offered me. Focusing them hastily, I saw at first only a tangle of underbrush on the distant mound's rim, and then something stalked into the field. It was unmistakably a human shape, and I knew at once that I was seeing the daytime Indian ghost. I did not wonder at the description, for surely the tall, lean, darkly robed being with the filleted black hair and seamed, coppery, expressionless, aquiline face looked more like an Indian than anything else in my previous experience. And yet my trained ethnologist's eye told me at once this was no redskin of any sort hitherto known in history, but a creature of vast racial variation and of a wholly different culture stream. Modern Indians are brachycephalic, round-headed, and you can't find any dolichocephalic or long-headed skulls except in ancient Pueblo deposits dating back 2,500 years or more. Yet this man's long-headedness was so pronounced that I recognized it at once, even at this vast distance and in the uncertain field of the monoculars. I saw, too, that the pattern of his robe represented a decorative tradition utterly remote from anything we recognized in southwestern native art. There were shining metal trappings, likewise a short sword or kindred weapon at his side, all wrought in a fashion wholly alien to anything I had ever heard of. As he paced back and forth along the top of the mound, I followed him for several minutes with the glass, noting the kinesthetic quality of his stride and the poised way he carried his head, and there was borne in again upon me the strong, persistent conviction that this man, whoever or whatever he might be, was certainly not a savage. He was the product of a civilization, I felt instinctively, though of what civilization I could not guess. At length he disappeared beyond the farther edge of the mound, as if descending the opposite an unseen slope, and I lowered the glass with a curious mixture of puzzled feelings. Compton was looking quizzically at me, and I nodded noncommittally. What do you make of that? He ventured. <laughs>
This is what we've seen here in Binger every day of our lives. That noon found me at the Indian Reservation, talking with old Gray Eagle, who, through some miracle, was still alive, though he must have been close to 150 years old. He was a strange, impressive figure, this stern, fearless leader of his kind who had talked with outlaws and traitors and French buckskin and French officials and knee breeches and three-cornered hats. And I was glad to see that because of my air of deference toward him, he appeared to like me. His liking, however, took an unfortunate, obstructive form as soon as he learned what I wanted, for all he would do was to warn me against the search I was about to make. You good boy, you no bother that hill. Bad medicine. Plenty devil under there. Catch him when you dig. No dig, no hurt. Go and dig, no come back. Just same with me, boy. Just same when my father and he father, boy. All time, buck, he walk in day. Squaw with no head, she walk in night. All time since white man with tin coats, they come from sunset and below big river. Long way back. Three, four times more back than Grey Eagle. Two times more back than Frenchman. All same after then. More back than that, nobody go near little hills nor deep valleys with stone caves. Still more back, those old ones no hide, come out, make villages, bring plenty gold. Me, them, you, them. Then big waters come. All change. Nobody come out. Let nobody in. Get in. No get out. They no die. No get old like Grey Eagle with valleys and face and snow on head. Just same like air. Some man. Some spirit. Bad medicine. Sometimes at night, spirit come out on half man, half horse with horn and fight where men once fight. Keep away them place, no good. You good boy, go away. Let them old ones alone. That was all I could get out of the ancient chief, and the rest of the Indians would say nothing at all. But if I was troubled, Grey Eagle was clearly more so for he obviously felt a real regret at the thought of my invading the region he feared so abjectly. As I turned to leave the reservation, he stopped me for a final ceremonial farewell, and once more tried to get my promise to abandon my search. When he saw he could not, he produced something half timidly from a buckskin pouch he wore, and extended it toward me very solemnly. It was a worn but finely minted metal disc, about two inches in diameter, oddly figured and perforated and suspended from a leathern cord. You no promise? Then Grey Eagle no can tell what get you. But if anything help him, this good medicine come from my father, he get from his father, he get from his father all the way back, close to Tirawa, all men's father. My father say, you keep way from those old ones. Keep way from little hills and valleys with stone caves. 
But if old ones, they come out to get you, then you show them this medicine. They know they make him long way back. They look, then they know do such bad medicine maybe. But no one can tell. You just keep way, just the same. Then no good, nor tell what they do. As he spoke, Grey Eagle was hanging the thing around my neck, and I saw it was a very curious object indeed. The more I looked at it, the more I marveled, for not only was its heavy, darkish luster and richly mottled substance an absolutely strange metal to me, but what was left of its design seemed to be a marvelously artistic and utterly unknown workmanship. One side, so far as I could see, had borne an exquisitely mottled serpent design, while the other had depicted a kind of octopus or other tentacled monster. There were some half-effaced hieroglyphs, too, of a kind which no archaeologist could identify or even place conjecturally. With Grey Eagle's permission, I later had expert historians, anthropologists, geologists, and chemists pass carefully upon the disk, but from them I obtained only a chorus of bafflement. It defied either classification or analysis. The chemists called it an amalgam of unknown metallic elements of some heavy atomic weight, and one geologist suggested that the substance must be of meteoric origin, shot from unknown gulfs of interstellar space. Whether it really saved my life or sanity or existence as a human being, I cannot attempt to say, but Grey Eagle is sure of it. He has it again now, and I wonder if it has any connection with his inordinate age. All his fathers who had it lived far beyond the century mark, perishing only in battle. Is it possible that Grey Eagle, if kept from accidents, will never die? But I'm ahead of my story. When I returned to the village, I tried to secure more mound lore, but found only excited gossip and opposition. It was really flattering to see how solicitous the people were about my safety, but I had to set their almost frantic remonstrances aside. I showed them Grey Eagle's charm, but none of them had ever heard of it before or seen anything even remotely like it. They agreed that it could not be an Indian relic, and imagined that the old chief's ancestors must have obtained it from some trader. When they saw that they could not deter me from my trip, the Binger citizens sadly did what they could to aid my outfitting. Having known before my arrival the sort of work to be done, I had most of my supplies already with me. Machete and trench knife for shrub clearing and excavating, electric torches for any underground phase which might develop, rope, field glasses, tape measure, microscope, and incidentals for emergencies, as much, in fact, as might be comfortably stowed in a convenient handbag. To this equipment, I added only the heavy revolver which the sheriff forced upon me and the pick and shovel which I thought might expedite my work. I decided to carry these latter things slung over my shoulder with a stout cord, for I soon saw that I could not hope for any helpers or fellow explorers. The village would watch me, no doubt, with all its available telescopes and field glasses, but it would not send any citizen so much as a yard over the flat plain toward the lone hillock. My start was time for early the next morning, and 
All the rest of that day, I was treated with the awe and uneasy respect which people give a man about to set out for certain doom.